Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book In the Arena by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF International, and we are on Chapter 7, Part 2. I saw my first hour go, and my second hour for preparation had to be invaded because the scribe sat back and explained his errand. He told me he had the thief chained and handcuffed in the village in another house, and then he began to extol Christianity, praising us with flattery that was detestable to me knowing that he himself spurned the Lord. On and on he went, but I was baffled. What was he driving at? Did I need to sign a document accusing the thief? I knew that Orientals do not come to the point, as we forthright Christians like to do, but I really could not guess his purpose in praising us for our big-heartedness, our good deeds, or our forgiving nature. As the second hour was driving to a close, I determined to end it, etiquette or no etiquette. I'm sorry, but we have a school here this month, I explained, and my duties call me away. Was there something you wanted me to sign? Oh, no. How very broad became the grins now. Then Mrs. Coon would be able to meet them this afternoon. Would she name the hour? Maybe she wished to see the thief. Oh, no, I had no such desire. It was all a miserable business to me. But they were waiting for an answer. Four o'clock in the afternoon at Mr. Patterson's cabin. Maybe he could help me understand the garbled Chinese. And with that, they bowed themselves out, still grinning broadly. Now I had to catch up on broken threads. The mimeograph work on the new chorus was not yet finished, perhaps. Clutching at the fleeing moment, so to speak, I saw one of the lay-suit deacons crossing my path, and I called him. We talked as we climbed towards the classroom together. Tell me quick, Deacon A, I said. What is the scribe here for? Has he come to return the money? Should I sign something? Oh, no, Mama, replied the lay-suit. The thief invested all the $200 he stole from you in cotton cloth, meaning to sell it on the market. When the fox heard about the robbery, he just hauled in the cloth. He's got it now, down in his yamen. The scribe will get part of it, but you won't get any. And the thief hopes to get free. That's all he'll get. But isn't there any justice in... I was still sputtering when we reached the classroom and I had to leave the deacon and go in. We were harassed by the scribe and his men for two days and a half. And finally, the scribe felt that Mrs. Coon was just too stupid ever to get the point. He would have to break all etiquette and be frank with her. So leaning forward, he said, Mrs. Coon, this man's record is so bad that if I put your accusation on paper, I will have to send him across to Lung Chao to the Chinese government magistrate. Only that magistrate has the power to sentence to death. And he has said that if the thief offended once more, he would have him killed. So then if you compel me to put his accusation on paper, you will be the cause of his death. You're a Christian missionary. Do you want that? Christianity professes love and forgiveness. Oh, yes, I answered, light having been broken so clearly for me. But Christianity does not condone sin. I will forgive him, but he should return the money he stole. Oh, that he spent long ago. There's none of it left, said the scribe, shaking with laughter. Isn't that so, he inquired of his three henchmen. Oh, how they laughed. Yes, they assured Mrs. Coon that all was gone long ago. Not a cent of it left. He will return the green sweater, and Mrs. Coon would have to generously forgive him. Wonderful thing, Christianity. Grin, grin, grin. By this time, the thief himself had been brought in. He squatted at my feet, watching this dramatic scene with mild interest, with absolutely no shame or repentance visible. Mr. Y, I said quietly. Inwardly, my Irish blood was boiling. Christianity is a wonderful thing. I'd like to explain a little to you, please. Silence, and four amused pairs of eyes turned on me. 
Christianity teaches that God is no respecter of persons. He is omniscient. He knows everything, even your thoughts. He even knows where that cloth is, which the thief here bought with the stolen money. And when we come to die, God is going to judge each of us according to our acceptance of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, or our rejection. He will not ask, who is the scribe for the Lord? Or who is the thief in the prison? He will ask, did you accept the provision I made for your salvation or did you reject it? If you rejected it, you will go to hell just the same as the thief here. You will be on a level there, rejectors of the Christ of God. I earnestly exhort you not to neglect so great a salvation. In the eyes of the judge of all the earth, you are as bad as he is right now. The atmosphere of the cabin had changed. There were no more grins, and in place of the merriment, four red-faced, ashamed heads hung down. The scribe muttered something about entering the church by and by and got up and said they must go. One pair of eyes did twinkle, those of the thief, but he was looking at the scribe who carefully avoided noticing him. I was given the green sweater, and the thief asked, asked me to forgive him, which I did, and the four half-breeds walked out and left us at peace at last. How did we ever get through those days? We did not know. But when it was all over and we compared notes, we found that no classes had been canceled. Somehow or other, one of us was always able to take the class when the scribe sent for one of us to come and talk. The school was a real blessing as shown by the tears that flowed down the girls' cheeks when they had to say goodbye at the end of the month. It was abundantly worth it. The February girls' Bible class safely accomplished what was next on their program for 1943. We had written down a new venture, a short Bible school for teenage boys. These are usually the family cowhands, but of course we did not wish to limit to that class, so we just announced the boys' Bible school in March for 10 to 20-year-olds. At the Christmas festival, we had announced it and drew the attention of the Christian families to the date set. Plowing had not yet begun, so other members of the family would be free to watch the cattle and let the cowhand come to the school if we held it in March. The cows and bulls are used in plowing the steep mountainsides and often represented the investment of the family earnings. On such precipitous slopes, the cattle can easily get to fighting and push one another over the ridge. They must be watched all the time. In some places at certain times of the year, the cowherd takes the cattle to the dell where the grass is luscious and camps out there himself, not returning home at night. In other words, it's hard to contact these boys for the Lord. March 1943, we written down as our first attempt. March 6th, they were to assemble. On March 4th, news came that our postmaster at the town of the Six Treasures had fled and was hiding because he feared the arrival of the Japanese. Six Treasures was only one day's distance from us, south of our side of the river. Chinese soldiers were already posted at the two ferry crossings, waiting to destroy these ferries if the Japanese appeared. Suppose some boys from the West Bank did come and their boats were destroyed. They would not be able to get back home. To add to our harassments, the weather was rainy and our cook gave notice that he was leaving. His bride of a few weeks was homesick and Joe must go and live with her people. We now had a little experience with the platform of harassments, so we plodded on as if life were normal. Thirty-six cowherds arrived and Mr. Yang, the principal of the church school, decided to cancel all classes so that his students could also attend, which swelled the number to seventy-six. Before the boys' Bible school ended, word came that Japanese had arrived at Penma Pass. Overhead, airplanes were seen daily, and sometimes even a dogfight. For we were right under the trail of the hump flights. But we finished in peace, and I quote from our circulars. 
We had a closing day program for the boys, and the four little cowherds from Lama Village brought much applause by rendering a beautiful anthem of Psalm 24 a cappella in four parts. Charles Patterson said that one small fellow stood and sang like a bishop. With all the pleasure of it, there were smiles of amusement, too. And after they got home, Lucius said that his cowherd, who had won the honor of being elected conductor of the music for the occasion, well, his tongue went so fast and so long recounting all his wonderful two weeks at Oak Flat that no one else could get in a word edgewise all evening. So at the end of March, we had that good feeling of having attained a spiritual battle contested at every step, but now finished, attained. Is there a thrill on earth to equal it? Yes, to hear that one's spiritual children are walking in the ways of the Lord is akin to it. But these are the deep things that pierce far below the surface and send a glowing joy throughout one's being. They give meaning and purpose to life, and they bring the thread of eternal value into the pattern, not visible before. In other words, God has revealed himself to us afresh in small harassments, and we are forever enriched by it. Maybe the harassment is too earthly to call a platform not only earthly, but ridiculous. These can be like the last straw on the camel's back, the culminating string of frustration that just seems more than we can take, yet it's so puny we dare not list it among our trials. Take, for instance, the careless laziness of our goat herd. Milk was a necessity, especially when Daniel Keardman Kuhn appeared, August the 1st, 1943. It was soon obvious that mother's milk must be supplemented. That year, in that distant corner, powdered milk or even tinned milk was out of sight in price. The hillside was too steep for cows, so the herd of goats furnished our milk. But never could we get a competent goat herd. He would only milk as much as he felt like. One quart today, a cup tomorrow. He would deny that more than a cup was to be squeezed from the critter. Neither Ava nor I knew how to milk, so we could not prove our point. Exasperation. Also, he would not even herd the animals carefully. We had two bullies. The older we called Hitler because he loved to rule and had a passion for destruction. He became quite rambunctious as he saw the younger Billy growing up and able to hold his own. This made him want to be first in all things. When they were being driven home at night, the older Billy would frequently rush ahead of the herd and make for our kitchen. Woe betide the cook if the door was not securely fastened. Hitler would rush in and make for the garbage pail. Being so big and strong, he was difficult to handle in that small place where a hard kick would dent the pots or break the bowls. But one day he waxed bolder. He found the stairs to the grain storeroom. I was in my bedroom watching at my desk when I heard noises. Push, bang, a yell in Chinese, a loud whack, a squeal, and then a terrible commotion. Above it all rose Ava's voice, high in anger. Mama, the big goat, old man. She could not stop to remember the correct English for the older Billy, and the name Hitler was attached to him after this event. Big goat old man go storeroom. Make awful mess. When Ava got excited, English grammar flew from the winds. Nouns, verbs were mainly all that were needed. I got up and went out to behold the spectacle. There was the big goat old man running for his life up the hill towards the refuge of his pen. After him was a blur of blue Chinese gown and a stick that ascended and descended regularly. On hair or on air, up, down it went. I laughed until I cried. He who lorded it all over so many of the females of the goat pen were scurrying up ahead of one small dot of femininity from China. There was no question as to who won that battle.
Nara was there any question as to how harassing a messed up storeroom can be when Bible school is in session? We must either discipline ourselves to leave it alone until we have time to sweep and tidy it, or we must give up some hoped-for leisure time and do it. In any case, it lends itself to self-discipline, and this is a place where we must meet the Lord. A soul well-disciplined is beyond all price. Knox's translation. I have met the Lord here many times. Philippians 3.21 used to be a help to me. It says that he is able to bring everything under his control. When the hot feelings of rebellion against circumstances would storm up in my heart, I have often cried to him, Lord, you said everything. That must mean me. Then control me. Control this flaming resentment, O Lord, I pray. And then he would. But first he met me. It was on just such a humiliating platform, a small harassment. The fact that the rainy season Bible school of 1942 had been broken into two sessions by the paratyphoid sickness among the white staff gave the idea to the Lesu Church of breaking it up into three sessions of one month each for 1943. This did not prove as satisfying, but it certainly was of the Lord for that year. I had told no one but John that we were expecting baby Danny to arrive in August, which would, of course, have meant that I could not help in teaching. But the church voted that on 1943, RSBC would be held in three sessions, April, August, and November. Unknown to us, God was planning to call Mrs. Layla Cook home to himself in May, just before the RSBC at Luda began their three-month study. Our change of schedule enabled Charles Peterson to teach our students in April and then go up to Luda and help teach there for two months or more. And still he would be back at Oak Flat for the November session for our school. John took the main burden of our teaching for the RSBC in August, but in the middle of September he had to leave. I had no doctor's help with Danny's advent, but one of our CIM nurses, Miss Dorothy Burroughs, skilled in obstetrics, generously offered to take her annual vacation by coming to the canyon and playing doctor for me. She stayed with me for more than a month after the confinement, but as she was serving on the Tali hospital staff, she had to get back to work and must have an escort out. Colonel Hesse had escorted her in, and he was going out for consultation and would get new supplies. So John escorted Dorothy to Tali, and they went on to Chungking, where the CIM superintendent's conference was to be assembled. This left only Charles and me for the November session of RSBC at Oak Flat. And next time we'll have to find out what happened. I love you. I'm praying for you. Bye-bye for now.